morning. That was outstanding. Uh, I think the last two songs really resonate with me um, for this sermon. This will be an, a tough sermon for me to preach for lots of reasons that I'll mention in a moment. But before that, I want to say a huge thank you um, for those of you who have come back for the fall. I was with Grace Bible from about the middle of May until August 20th each week, but two, and I loved being here, and good to be back this morning, and thank you for the way you sent me off on August 20th with uh, cards. If you've read Gary Chapman's Five Love Languages, mine is Words of Affirmation, so you just nailed it, and uh, I loved reading those and rereading those, and uh, some of you gave other gifts which is great, including a free car wash, but I noticed they were closed when I came in today. So, uh, just, I mean, that's the reason I came, really, but now that I'm here, I'll preach. But <laughs> outstanding stuff, and I felt very loved, and, and, uh, and I love you guys and continue to pray for you guys. So here are some important disclaimers about the passage we're looking at, which is Matthew 5, verses... 27 through 32. The first disclaimer is this. This will be an uncomfortable sermon for me to preach because of the style I will have to use. Um, I love and enjoy preaching where it is a revealing of prayer and study and research of which I don't really feel led for you to know about. Like I don't need to share my prayers or my research or my struggle with the text, it seems that God usually just gives me something to present as a gift. So it's much more like theater. You just see the performance or like writing, you just see the final draft, but there's no reason to show your work. This morning will be much more like algebra where you're supposed to show your work. And that's because the topic is so controversial then I wouldn't expect you to take my word for it if I just told you my results without taking you on the journey of how I got those results, particularly when we get to verses 31 and 32 on divorce and remarriage. By the way, um, Keith Hubbard, who I've listened to uh, online, has been doing a great job covering the Sermon on the Mount, and he's the one who chose this passage for me. So thanks so much. Um, (laughs) Uh, my hope, and, and I only mean this halfway kidding, uh, my hope is that he is able to move past this passage next week like he intends to and not have to preach again on it because he's so uh, unpleased with how I did with it. So I, I hope, I think God will help me, and I hope you'll, you'll stay with me as we go, go through this text. Another disclaimer is, kind of along with that, Uh, As I debated on how to cover this material, I I felt like I had two choices in front of me. One was to be more um, neutral in presenting various views, all of which good Christian people have, and then letting you um, see those views and choose from those views. God did not lead me to do that. Uh, The other view was to just take the risk of telling you 
what my view is. So I'll, sh I'll share different views, but you asked me to speak this morning, and certainly I might be wrong about some of the things I say, but I'm going to say them anyway and take the risk. And so beyond any doubt, we will disagree this morning, which is always a tough and uncomfortable thing. There'll be plenty I say this morning that you disagree with, and uh, we'll just let love conquer all, and you can continue to disagree, or you might sway me towards yours, or perhaps God will God will show you things, and we'll all maybe be on the same page. I doubt it. But So let's get to this text. Um, chapter 5 in Matthew, verses 27 through 32, uh, say this. I think we're going to look at just... 27 through 30 first, and show you a pattern that he is using. So, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. The first, the first point you have in your bulletin is what pattern is Jesus using in this passage? And the pattern for all that you've heard even so far in chapter 5 after the Beatitudes is a pattern of, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. So I want to give you four uh, statements about this pattern Jesus has. And the first is that he is correcting wrong teaching and wrong interpretation. So with this passage on adultery, which is the easy section and will be the shortest section of this sermon, because we could, you know, caveman talk would be adultery bad, fidelity good, amen, done. Okay, uh, so what he's correcting is this checkbox religious attitude of the day where to be a good husband simply meant that you did not commit adultery. You know, and any wife that had a man who didn't sleep around should she's she got a catch because so you have this low 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 standard. So Jesus comes and when he's saying you've been told. Not to commit adultery, there's the epitome of a good man. I'm telling you, if you lust after someone in your heart, you look intently in order to lust, you're planning to lust in the look, then you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. So one pattern is, he, is correction. A second part of this pattern Jesus has is that he's offering an exchange from religion and rules to right relationship with God. So religion says... Just do this and you're fine. Just don't commit adultery equals good husband, right? Um, don't swear falsely equals honest person. Where Jesus says, you've heard, don't swear falsely, um, but perform your words to the Lord. But I say don't swear at all. So all of these follow this pattern. You've been told here's the religious way of living. I'm telling you there's a different way of living that is right relationship with God and then St. Augustine in 300 AD kind of summarized Jesus' philosophy here by saying, if you love God, you can do whatever you want. And that's what Jesus is trying to get to. Look, quit asking what can I do and what can't I do and love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and then go do whatever you want while you're loving God and you'll be fine. But they didn't want that. They wanted a box 
to check. And he's offering this wonderful exchange. Another thing he's doing, a third step in this pattern, is he's transferring power from religious institution to Messiah and disciple. So religious institution says don't do this or, or make sure that you accomplish this and they have the power over you to enforce that. So you, you have to walk one mile with someone or um, you have to not commit adultery and they're gonna check and they're gonna make sure and they're gonna know, they're gonna be the ones, the religious institution, they're gonna be the ones who know when you sin. And Jesus says, you know what? You can be the one who knows when you sin. And really, there's amazing freedom here. Because I would love to be the one who knows when I sin and not let you ever know it. If I'm in right relationship with God and I'm constantly aware of my sin, but I'm constantly aware of my sin, so I'm constantly repenting, and you look maybe, I hope, and say, wow, that guy seems to be walking with the Lord, and then I can think, man, if you only knew, so glad you don't, if you only knew. If you knew every sin I dealt with, you wouldn't even listen this morning, right? You'd go run away. And so all of us are like that, and when we, when we sell out for a religious form of living and just check boxes, then we feel proud of ourselves because we're accomplishing these things. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. There's, there's this inner and there's this other right relationship you can have with me that you should be after. It's not adultery, it's lust. It's not just don't do this to your wife, it's love your wife. And then... The fourth is that he sacrifices the ability to strictly enforce something with the opportunity to love God with all your heart. That one we're going to come back to. He's exchanging the ability to strictly enforce something. See, anytime you go to inner and right relationship with God, you, you lack strict enforcement, which is why people don't like to do it. So when I was in Poland, uh, which is a place I love, and I've spent a year of my life there, I remember doing a Saturday camp. And some of the students, we were teaching English, and they came, and we were doing a Saturday picnic for the, all of our students. And several of the uh, students that we had, because their modesty level in Poland isn't what it is in East Texas, they were, it was summer, and they were going to a park, so they just all wore bikinis to eat barbecue. We were having a barbecue out, and here about four or five students show up in bikinis. And I remember telling another team member, saying, good grief. Um, you know, I, I want to interact with everybody, but I can't, there's somebody I just can't even talk to. And he was 20 years older than me, and he goes, really? I said, have you seen what they're wearing? He goes, yeah, Mike, but I prayed, a, I, I really just prayed that God would let me see everybody as a sister or a daughter, and I really just don't struggle with that. <laughs> so, okay, well, you talk to them. Then. <laughs> That's great. So, the point is, if... You know, religious would just say, hide your eyes, look away, you know, veil your face, look, you can't look that way. But apparently, and I trust the guy, he's a solid Christian guy, and he might not be able to say the thing every single day, but that day he could say, I have no problem interacting with these people in bikinis without lust because God set my heart right, and, I've, and I'm saying, well, I can't. And so we're at two different levels. Religion doesn't help us because we're at two different levels of weakness when it comes to lust. So... That's what Jesus is getting at here. Now, the, maybe the easiest way to say it, then we'll get into the next two points, which are stickier and tougher and harder. It's like religion and the Pharisees uh, that, that, Jesus is correct, that, that Jesus is correcting their teaching. 
are teaching a dance without ever teaching people to dance. There's such a big difference. My, my little girl, Molly, goes to dance. Good grief. $300 worth a month. How rough and that is. Um, we had a family meeting about it this week. She's still going to go to dance $300 a month. <laughs> uh, but I, I took her to dance one, one day this week, and they were having a new class. I was so excited. I could watch this new class, this hip-hop class that had started. I love hip-hop. I can't, can't do it, but I'm like, this is going to be so great. I'm going to watch these people do hip-hop. And the teacher came in, and it was their first class, and she was teaching them what move to do at what part of the song. And I, and I wrote in the book I was reading there, I was like, there's a big difference between teaching someone a dance and teaching someone to dance. She's teaching them a dance. The reason I know not much was getting accomplished in there is because I could have done it. <laughs> but I can't dance. But I can do this on this word and this on this word. And I thought, man, what a shame. And that's the sort of religion that Jesus was trying to rescue these people. Re the, the Pharisees were like, just let me teach you a dance. Okay, it's this step followed by this step followed by this step followed by this step. And Jesus is like, how about we get some music playing and I teach you to dance. And you all look different, but it'll all be better. And that's, that's what Jesus is getting at here. When I lust might not be when you lust. Adultery looks the same. It's a checkbox. But lust is much deeper, and, and that's where God is, is attentive to. Now, I surveyed that quickly because it's not as controversial as the next. Let's look at 31 and 32 where we'll, we'll spend. And I'll just tell you up front, you, it might be 20 minutes that we'll spend, so you might go over eight minutes, so I apologize up front, because it, it's something I, th I think I have to cover and can't really cut short. So, does that pattern follow also this text with divorce? So here Jesus said, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So, what teaching is he correcting? Here's the teaching he's correcting. It's awful. The teaching he's correcting is, just as being a good husband meant just don't have a, an affair, divorcing correctly meant give the woman a certificate of divorce. This was a rule that Moses made that later in the Gospels, Jesus, when they say, uh, well, when we follow Moses, aren't we doing okay? And he said, yeah, Moses gave you that rule for the hardness of your heart. So here, here was the issue. First of all, all of this is best understood if you realize that women had absolutely zero say. This totally addresses man when you divorce your wife. Nothing about wives divorcing your husband, that's not an issue. That's never happening, ever. So women were second-class citizens and divorced women were second-class citizens. And the issue was... That a, that a man could divorce his wife for absolutely no reason. The word divorce literally means to throw out. So he would just throw his wife out. And the only option she had, because she can't start a business, she can't go to school, she can find another husband, or she can sell the only good that people are buying, which is her own body, and she can go into prostitution. Those are the only two choices that she has, unless she's got family that could take her in, and then, then that would start the process of finding a husband. So it's really still just choice one. So, to try to fix this a little bit, Moses said, you have to give her a, a reason why you divorced her. You have to write down and give her a certificate of divorce. 
so that she can go to her next husband and say, yes, I know I'm a second, second-class citizen. Uh, I know I've, I've, I've been divorced, but it was for, and I, I don't mean this lightly, they could do this kind of stuff, but it was for that I didn't cook the way he wanted. He would write that. You don't cook the way I want, go. And so she could find a husband who wasn't picky about his food. Literally, that's the, that's the option that she has. So she has, she has something to, to show for herself on why she was divorced. And Jesus is saying, how ridiculous is this that you think good, obedient divorce is simply writing a certificate, handing it to her, so she has that. He said, how about just stay with your wife? Because literally, here's the attitude. Here's how far off they are from the ways of Jesus. That men would think, man, I care for women. I take care of women. Because when I divorce them, I give them a certificate of divorce. So they can find another husband. So I care for women. And, and, and Jesus is saying, you don't care for women very well. If you care for women such, to such an extent that you care about their future so you're going to give them a certificate of divorce. How about care about their future and stay married to them and love them? So he's correcting bad teaching, bad interpretation. He's offering an exchange from religion to right relationship. He goes right past Moses all the way to Adam and Eve. Clearly that, that God created man and woman to live as one flesh and to be in a marriage relationship and he's transferring power from the institution to the weaker, which in this case is the woman, rebuking the men who weren't treating her well. And here's where it may get controversial. I also believe that he is sacrificing the ability to strictly enforce because he doesn't say adultery here. He was talking about adultery. It would have been easy for him to say adultery, but instead he uses another word that's translated sexual immorality. So I, I believe, and I'll get to this in a minute, that sexual immorality is a larger option, a bigger umbrella, if you will, that fits more things under it than adultery. That adultery is religious and mechanical and easy and visible, and that sexual immorality is inner, just like lust. And then he's carrying on that same theme here. So he's sacrificing the ability to, to strictly enforce like the, like the woman that was caught in adultery and thrown at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus said, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to judge you. And invites everyone else. He who has no sin can be the first to cast these stones. The visible sin was obvious. She had been caught in adultery. What wasn't obvious was all the invisible sin, which was in all those men's hearts that Jesus was trying to bring out and successfully did so because the Bible says they all walked away and didn't throw any stones that day. The whole Sermon on the Mount and this section in particular, Jesus is, is trying to do the same thing. Yes, there's public, easy to see sin, which is awful and you shouldn't do, but there's so much more under the surface, private, inner sin that you need to deal with first and most. So what does this text mean? What does this mean? Well, the biggest, easiest foundational idea is that God loves marriage and wants husbands to love their wives. I won't elaborate on that because it's easy. So let's talk about what does he mean. Concerning divorce, what does Jesus mean? The strictest interpretation is that he means the only divorce that is ever allowed is a divorce that comes because of adultery. 
that sexual morality, immorality here means adultery. He was just talking about adultery, that it means adultery, and that the only divorce that's ever allowed by God is when one partner has committed adultery. John Piper holds this view, and I agree with him in almost everything but this. And this view is, it celebrates the holiness of God and celebrates the sanctity of marriage, and it may be your view. The, uh, another conservative view still takes into account that Paul later in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says to believers that if their spouses have left them, that they, are, they, they haven't sinned, that they can stay in the condition they're in. In other words, what was happening as the gospel was spreading is that people were trusting Jesus, but not both spouses at the same time. So you found yourself in a relationship where one was a Christian and one was not a Christian. And because being a Christian is supposed to matter so much and they were living out their faith, the marriage was just awful. And so the pagans, pagan spouses were leaving. Forget you. I don't want to be married to you. You're not the person I married. This, I don't understand the difference and I don't want to be saved like you. I don't want to trust Jesus. I'm gone. And they left. And Paul said to them that they were not sinning by letting that person go. So here's the problem we have. Paul says desertion, or desert, they leave, is, is grounds for a divorce that isn't sinful. Jesus says adultery is grounds for divorce that isn't sinful, but really said sexual morality is grounds for divorce that isn't sinful. And so here's the problem we have. Did Paul correct Jesus? Some people say yes. He not corrected, but added to. He added to Jesus. Here's the problem I find with that view, that only adultery and only desertion are grounds for divorce. First of all, it assumes that Jesus didn't know this problem might occur 30 years later, 40 years later. Maybe worse than that, it assumes that Jesus wasn't complete in his words, so Paul had to add to them to, to be more comprehensive and the greatest danger with that is how do we know that Paul was comprehensive? How do we know that there's not other examples that we can just add to? See the problem? So here's what I think through study and prayer. And when Jesus said sexual immorality was grounds for divorce, and Paul says desertion are grounds for divorce, they cannot be saying two things, which means that a pagan deserting their spouse must fall under the umbrella of sexual immorality. Follow that? This is the stuff I would never show you in other sermons. This is dry, algebraic stuff. But it's, it's the logic of that they aren't two separate things, that Jesus must have said something broad enough to include anything Paul would say. So there's no contradiction. So... Deserting your spouse as a pagan and leaving your spouse must be a form of sexual immorality that would be covered by Jesus' statement because he said all divorce was bad except for sexual immorality. And it shouldn't be except for this and except for that and except for that. It should be an umbrella big enough to fit everything under. So it makes, and what it does is make everything inner and tough again. Because then it makes us all say, well, what is sexual immorality? Adultery is easy to define. What's sexual immorality? Well, it's at least a pagan spouse leaving you. And it could be more. I would argue that it is more. 
And I'm reluctant to give you a definition because then we're just back to religion, so I won't. But I'll give you a few examples. I think that it would be fair to say that if... <laughs> I'll start with just a wild one that I hope that you would agree with, but some people don't. I think it would be fair to say that if a, if a husband shoots his wife, that she has grounds to divorce him even though he didn't commit adultery because shooting her is sexual immorality. Wouldn't you say shooting her destroys intimacy? I think so. <laughs> so, and, there's, and this is awful. This is the awfulness of religion, that there, there, are, there are women who have been taught religiously and legalistically that the only option ever is if the man cheats on you and the man verbally abuses and maybe physically abuses and maybe physically abuses the kids and maybe sexually abuses the daughter and then you have a wife say, but he's never, he's never committed adultery. What do I do? And well, I think you have grounds for divorce. But God always, always, always loves marriage and sometimes allows divorce. God doesn't ever love divorce. Malachi makes it clear at the end of Malachi. He says, I hate divorce. And so that's what they're afraid of. That's what religion does is try to strictly enforce something because they're afraid that people make their own decisions. They might make the wrong decisions, unaware that the wrong decision they made was to strictly enforce something on people. So it has, it has to be something broad enough to include desertion, and I think broad enough to include some things that we deal with today. So God loves marriage and under some circumstances allows divorce, but it's unclear whether the circumstances are adultery or adultery and desertion or sexual morality that's so broadly defined that it would include desertion. I believe it's the third, and you can feel free to disagree. I might be wrong. So now he says... So, so that's your grounds for divorce. It's the only grounds for divorce. But then he says, if you send your wife away, you cause her to commit adultery. What does this mean? That, and, and by the way, Jesus puts the blame on the man. Remember, this is a, a patriotic society. He says, if you send her away, if you throw her away, if you divorce her, you're going to cause her to commit adultery. Well, it could mean lots of things. It could mean that... Uh, she's going to go into prostitution and commit adultery because that's the only option that she'll have. It could mean that she's going to go get another husband, but because you guys were still married in God's eyes, she's committing adultery, which is an interesting thing to consider that we don't get to decide when we're married and when we're unmarried. God does, and it's holy, and God decides, and it has to be a marriage that he allowed to end. It could mean that um, when a woman has to remarry to get provisions or results to prostitution to get provisions, that this equals adultery because she's still married in the eyes of the Lord to the man that threw her away because he had no grounds to throw her away. And Jesus blames this man because the pattern is care for the weaker here, which is not just a pattern of the Sermon on the Mount. It is the heart of God. So, he says to the man, you discard her, you throw her out, you're going to cause her to commit adultery. Then, he says, and if you marry someone who is divorced, you're going to commit adultery. So we get from divorce into remarriage and have a whole other can of worms. 
I'll go about five more minutes on this. It is so unclear what Jesus means here. I'll give you a sample sentence. If I were to say, if we're at the equator, and I were to say, everyone who goes out in this sun, except those who put on this lotion, are going to get burned. It's going to be miserable for everybody. Is the sentence, it's going to be miserable for everybody, everybody, or just the people who didn't put sunscreen on? I, we don't know. That's the situation we have here. Because I could put sunscreen on and go out by the equator and still be miserable, right? It could be awful because it's hot. So when Jesus says, look, everyone who divorces except the, because of sexual morality is guilty of adultery when they remarry. Well, is that how he's saying it? Just the people who, who divorced out of bounds are guilty? Or is he done with divorce? Everyone who divorces this way is guilty. This is the only way you can divorce. Oh, and by the way, everyone who marries someone who's been divorced commits adultery. I don't know. I don't know which one he means. So he could mean that remarriage is actually stricter than divorce. It could mean, and here's the strictest view, that the only remarriage ever allowed by God is a remarriage where the previous spouse either doesn't exist because it's a first marriage or the previous spouse has died. And of course, the people getting married need to be believers. So it could be that the only marriages allowed are two believers marrying with no living former attachments. And that is one of the views. Or it could mean that when you marry and you never had grounds for divorce because you're still married in the eyes of God, your next marriage puts you in adultery. It could mean that. And if you read Richard Foster, who wrote Celebration of Disciplines and is good there, it could mean, according to him, that Jesus is over-speaking, just like he doesn't mean for you to pull out your eye, and he doesn't mean for you to cut off your hand, that he's over-speaking here, that not everyone commits adultery, that he's just telling these husbands, you're committing adultery because you have wives coming in and out, and you're causing them to commit adultery, and he's just talking about that, and that we're just supposed to follow the law of love. I don't think it's that. I think it's probably the second one, where if your grounds for divorce were biblical, then your grounds for remarriage are biblical. But if you hold the strictest view where everyone has to be dead, you, you won't ever fall into the sin because that will keep you even off that cliff. <sighs> so X equals 37. Here's, here's the wonderful bottom line. And uh, Jesse, come on up. We'll sing that last song. Here's the wonderful bottom line. Because this is real stuff. And someone told me as I was asking them to pray for me this week uh, what I was sharing. I told them what I was sharing. And they said, man, that'll be hard to explain because there's probably lots of people there who have been divorced and remarried. And, and here's, and I don't mean this callously. I just mean this trying to be faithful to God. I can't possibly read this and decide what it means while also considering that people are married. I can't do that. That's, that's evil. You can't decide who's your audience and then decide what is true. You have to look regardless of your audience and say, well, here's what I think is true. And then, because of who your audience is, be as gentle and loving as you can, telling them what you think the truth is. So, if you went and you spoke to 
a cannibalistic tribe, you know, you would still say that that is bad. You shouldn't do that. You wouldn't say, eh, well, you've been doing it so many years. <laughs> just, just cut back. Just cut back. <laughs> you wouldn't do that. So here's, here's the deal. Here's the deal. We have been divorcing and remarrying for years and years and years. And Jesus has something to say to us about it. And whatever he says to us about it is good and loving because he is good and loving. So I would conclude by saying this. If you're, if you're single and you're wondering if you're ever supposed to get married, you just, you just go to God and get to know him the best you can and ask him. If you're in a marriage that's awful and you're wondering whether there's grounds for divorce, you just go to him and beg him and ask other people to help you and ask him. If you've been divorced and you think, oh, I really, really, really want to get remarried, I don't think I can live like this, then you just do the best you can and go to God and pray and beg and ask people's help and, and ask him. He makes it clear that we're not supposed to marry unbelievers, but as soon as we do, he makes it clear to stay in the state that we're in. You don't repent from marrying an unbeliever by divorcing them. And so if you find yourself this morning and you say, wow, I think from this text I was divorced and I remarried and I probably shouldn't have remarried, the repentance isn't to divorce. The repentance is, is already, the forgiveness is already available through repentance. And you just say that to God and he forgives you and restores you and, and, and puts you in right relationship with him and you go on. Um, some of the blessings that I enjoy are because both my parents have divorced and remarried, but I know that God intended them to never do that. And I know that my life would be better, even better, if they had stayed together. And so just because God is gracious when we sin, like Paul says elsewhere, isn't reason for us to go sin. So... Let's pray and then sing to God who is holy. Jesus, I ask that you would just help us see you more than a tangled web of maybe it's this, maybe it's that, which is important to think about. But I pray that through all that we'd see you, a God who does not approve of the stronger taking advantage of the weak, a God who does not approve in a man not being a good husband. A God who loves and values marriage. And a God who is able to mourn with and suffer with those who divorce. A God who is available whether we're single or married or divorced or remarried. Available and holy and good. And help us to celebrate you as, as that God that invites us to celebrate and love. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand?